Hello, welcome to Solomon's Temple. This episode, we're moving on to book three of The Gay Science by Friedrich Nietzsche. He comes out with some really powerful imagery right out of the gates, saying that there is this shadow that exists in a cave of the Buddha. He is saying, or repeating, God is dead, and we have to vanquish the shadow of Buddha as well. Almost as if the iconography of Buddha. I should add that Buddha never, or Jesus for that matter, wanted an iconography of them. They simply wanted to propose the ultimate point of what it is generally to be alive, and to make spiritual progress, and to unify a whole or to unify consciousness within an, a single narrative. Like Buddha said, you know, every, everything and everyone is Buddha nature. So there's no one Buddha person. That should be the example. But of course there is this sort of canonization of these things. And Nietzsche, I think, most righteously sees that as an issue, a societal problem or a fixation problem in knowledge and reality. He's saying vanquish the shadow of the Buddha. He goes on to start attacking the idea that the things that happen on the crust of this planet somehow are reflective of what is eternal, or uh, is attacking the idea that we are seeing the universe as some sort of organism. But Nietzsche says, no, this is way too reductive, this is way too simplified, this is flat linear thinking, and the universe is far more cyclical and grand and beyond that. And I think maybe in this view, I don't know what he's conflating it as, but in my opinion, I think even even the linear sort of progression of things going on on this little planet and this minor system at this galaxy, blah, 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 within the entire fractal of the entirety, which we can't comprehend necessarily, but still, this is still an expression or some sort of smaller piece of the greater whole. I don't really agree with him, but honestly, I think he's onto something like, well, there, there is still this over-aggrandizing and sort of starry-eyed vision of what's happening here. Almost like we can't get over the importance of what happens within our localities. And I guess that is, in essence, partly true. But also, I mean, what kind of importance do you have in your life without first thinking that what you're doing has some sort of meaning or is impactful in, in some way. Everyone wants to be impacting something. I don't know. I mean, why wouldn't you want to have that, in my opinion? Why wouldn't you want to love to have that? But let's go on. Would it be that there are no purposes and that, in fact, there are also no accidents in the light of there being no purpose? That the total character of the world is in all eternity chaos. He's sort of reducing those into a sort of aesthetic anthropomorphism where we're looking onto these things and labeling them within human reason and capacity and character and feeling. We're giving the human definition into the things themselves but they aren't those things. It's almost as if we're carving them into like this art form. But of course, the origins of nature are not only chaotic, but unorderly. And they're not sculpted. They're not sculpted to our will, essentially. Even though in some sense there might be some sort of universal will, or worldly will, as it is. But for him, there are no eternally enduring substances. Matter is as much of an error as the god of the Eleatics. But when shall we ever be done with our caution and care? When will all these shadows of God cease to darken our minds? When will we complete our de-deification of nature? When may we begin to naturalize humanity in terms of a pure, newly discovered, newly redeemed nature? I suppose you never will, if in fact 
the nature of things are the anthropomorphized, thrown over definitive sight or feeling we have of it, the aesthetic qualities of the thing, the things themselves, maybe we'll just never get there. Maybe the point really isn't being made. I don't know what he's trying to say exactly. I'm trying to get down to what it is, but maybe things are much greater than our inspection and that our will to order it will be some kind of, honestly, just a, a tell us a purpose an end unto itself, but it seems like the world or the things that happen within it or the universe has like this end unto itself. It seeks out its own effect cyclically, like how there's a tree implanted within the whole idea of the acorn existing, that little acorns are just little trees, and the whole idea is for these acorns to recycle another tree, and then from the acorn, the tree happens and comes another acorn. And You know, I don't know. It just seems like um, the multitude of things wants to be itself and cycle itself through and sustain itself and transact. I don't know what he means or what nat to naturalize humanistic terms and to appear newly discovered, newly redeemed nature. I don't I don't know what he means by all that. But of course, in the natural course course of things, it isn't like a machine where the machine has a very distinct input output sort of purpose, utility kind of anthropomorphized driven physicality to it, like the physicality of the rest of nature, it isn't like that. It won't be that way forever and nothing has been the way it has been forever. It goes on and changes always. It is always uh, tumbling along and evolving. Don't know what to say about it other than maybe na nature doesn't give a damn about anything else within it or just it only gives a shit about itself and then when it relates to everything else, nature as a whole doesn't give a hell about the rest of nature. I'm at, a, I'm at a loss with all of this. He says, quote, the strength of knowledge does not depend on its degree of truth, but on its age, on the degree to which it has been incorporated, and on its character as a condition of life, where life and knowledge seem to be at odds. There was never any real fight, but denial and doubt were simply considered madness. Those exceptional thinkers like the Eleatics, who nevertheless posited and clung to the opposites of the natural errors, believed that it was possible to live in accordance with these opposites. They invented the sage as a man who was unchangeable and impersonal, the man of the universality of intuition, who was one and all at the same time, with a special capacity for his inverted knowledge. They had the faith that their knowledge was also the principle of life, but in order to claim all of this, they had to deceive themselves about their own state. They had to attribute to themselves fictitiously personality and changeless duration. They had to misapprehend the nature of the knower. They had to deny the role of the impulses in knowledge. And quite generally, they had to conceive of reason as a completely free and spontaneous activity. They shut their eyes to the fact that they too had arrived at their propositions through opposition to common sense or owing to a desire for tranquility, for soul possession, or for dominion. So these old thinkers were trying to incorporate truth-seeking in with all the errors that came alongside it. And Nietzsche is just sort of saying like, well, there's a desire for a common sense, for a kind of a place where skepticism can flourish, but in the end, as a result of all this skepticism, you wind up with sentience and knowledge, I guess. But there's sort of also this dealing with contradiction like within the reason of cultures or the reason of civilizations or civilized man 
dealing with their own knowledge, you just run into contradictions, and then you're never going to sort those out or let those uh, run free in the way that you're supposed to, because in, for Nietzsche, that just won't happen. It'll just be errors. I think a significant projection on all this is everyone has the sensation of being alive. I don't think it requires this constant inquiry into what counts as being true by words or anything like this, but there's sort of like a in intuitional listening to the, the kinds of filtered, pure messages that are received rather than being ran through this kind of erroneous skepticism or this uh, conjured up recycling of terms and agreements that have been made that you have to cross over and in, in, in order to view yourself something like this because just naturally we suppose just even when you're driving in your car we may forget the fact that mortality is just staring at you in the face you know every time you go around a, a blind corner you know it, it, it's there but we all have the sensation of like i'm going to stay on this side of the road and drive this speed because i'm trying to preserve myself and i'm going to use my my significant self-preservation powers to get me to the end state of staying alive the whole goal or end state is just stay alive even though i'm subjecting myself to death constantly but that's what life is you're constantly subjecting yourself to a kind of death or a detriment or an unhealth or whatever it may be it doesn't matter what it is but the fact of the matter is you're moving away from some point you're going toward another there's a sort of internal guidance equilibrium state to which there's no skepticism. You just feel your way around that one. I don't know if I think what's being said, it's more, it should be more about the sensation of what has been created through the, the imaginative qualities or circumstantial or situational qualities in which we find ourselves. I think that's kind of more where it's at because there is, because that in itself is sort of just like an, an absurdity. To the nature of gen gender formation within a society seems like i can't really wrap my my finger around that one i mean it is a sort of a cultural construction but just you could examine the essential form of receptivity and and givenness i don't know you just think in terms of soft inwardness you know receive receive yes receptivity and then giving and then like mm, like you know very penis kind of energy I don't know, you just like you model your own aesthetics off of a sort of gender quality in which that brings. Society's losing its freaking marbles, but yeah, you know, like just even with stuff like that, these cultural constructions, I don't know how. Again, there, there's sort of a more than just what you were given in your parts definition of an expressive quality in life but ultimately there is these two dual qualities in the end i don't know that could be sorted out among the individual but i think in the end it's like there's an end unto everything and i don't know if there's just you can call it error unless you 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 make yourself question it you can call it an error but i don't think it's like there's just all these errors that happen i think everything expresses and emerges from itself in an organic kind of fashion i feel like i might disagree with freddy boy Fred. Frederick starts speaking on the origin of logic. Now, this is interesting. He's saying that there is a, a greater likelihood for animals that had a dominant tendency not to treat things with skepticism or to see that everything is changing or in flux, but that 
to affirm rather than suspend judgment to err and make things up to, to make up things rather than wait to assent rather than to negate to pass judgment rather than to just just be had not been bred to the point where it became extraordinarily strong the course of logical ideas and inferences in our brain today correspond to a process and a struggle among impulses that are taken singly very illogical and unjust we generally experience only the result of this struggle because this primeval mechanism now runs its course so quickly and is so well concealed so it's almost as if you're acting upon impulse like the most primal click of a impulse that runs from your brain to assess what is happening and to do just that it's like to just simply trust the instinct of life is what helps you survive more than the one that's like Aaron and Himmin and han and this and that and the other thing all day long he says for a long time logic was not employed to change to see the flux in things or the changes in things that to sit on information wasn't the norm for a very 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 long time and that what flourished were the illogical there wasn't this sorting out of information that went on it was just a happening and a sort of a plop and that's maybe the the code that really goes on is that uh, all these things don't really have to be understood but they may be felt or just revered for no other reason unto it's just impulsively passing by and giving you its information and you receive it and don't question it i suppose sounds a little bit like having faith in life ew but i don't know if you'd like that nietzsche goes into cause and effect he's saying how can we possibly have these descriptions of everything and knowledge and science if really what we pretend to comprehend is latent in the description he's saying that we cannot have a kind of cause and effect theory because we don't understand chemical processes it's it appears as a miracle to us, or even locomotion, that we can't explain a push. We don't even know where the first mover was in all of the universe of everything. We can't let alone understand physics completely. We, we humanize things. We stay faithful to the image, our image of things. Because lines, planes, bodies, atoms, divisible time spans, spaces... All these concepts, they're not, they're made possible only within our image. He says, it will do to consider science as an attempt to humanize things as faithfully as possible as we describe things and they're one after another. We learn how to describe ourselves more and more precisely. Cause and effect, such a duality probably never exists. In truth, we are confronted by a continuum out of which we isolate a couple of pieces just as we perceive motion only as isolated points and then infer it without ever actually seeing it. So he's not a cause and effect kind of guy. He repudiates it and he denies conditionality. And what is conditionality? Well, in logic, there's an assumption condition derivation on the condition that this is the case. It would follow that this is also the case. If this, then that. I'm guessing he's kind of referring back to the whole logical supposition for cause and effect, things following logically, if this is the case, then that. He's kind of tying those together. But in some sense, I feel like, yes, there is this anthropomorphic vision on the whole of nature. But also, it's like, you could still infer what's going to happen. So I, I'm not really sure on to what extent he means by this. I don't know what to really say again. Moving on, there is the idea of, yet again, free will that shows up. He's saying that there is a sense of self, a pleasure in being an individual, and having this freedom of will 
that in a modern in modern times is embraced that to experience oneself neither to obey nor to rule but to be an individual but that was not the case he's saying that in the past this e this egoism or this sort of esteem for oneself according to their own weight and measure of things that it offended taste back in the day that there was an inclination to do this and if you did not and that you set yourself apart from more of a herd morality in how you were to associate yourself the feeling of this sort of uh, loneliness or setting yourself apart from the herd was associated with a kind of misery or fear or madness he says free will was very closely associated with a bad conscience and the more unfree one's actions were the more the herd instinct rather than any personal sense was found to express itself in an action the more moral one would feel. I'm sort of not a proponent of free will. I feel like, yes, there's always an option to be able to be oneself, but you don't choose who you are. It just unfolds and happens, happens for you. It just happens. You're not going about like, I'm going to be me because I am I know who I'm going to be in five years. You, it just sort of happens. There's all sorts of things that happen to you where you become who you are, but it's like, oh man, I, I really wanted to be something else. Well, why aren't you someone else? Well, because things just sort of happen as they do. And I sort of believe there is this more universalized consciousness that unfolds that not everybody could just be what they freely think they want to be because they're free to act or will however they are. There's just isn't a lot of freedom there. There's no real individuality either, even though you are a sort of unique expression and there are options. I guess what I'm saying is you don't have a choice, but to believe and feel and think that you do in fact in the end, rather than being determined by all these different things happening to you and all these events unfolding, to think that you do what, you know, just was seen as a sort of madness, like you're coming apart from what there actually is. Like there's this altogether essential will that everyone is subjected to, but if you think you're apart from it and can just detach from it and go some other way, it's like, and I believe that. It's like people that really think that way, I think it is kind of grandiose and egotistical and it's not, it's prompted by a conscience that doesn't, thinks of itself too differently. It hasn't learned that it isn't different from anything that else that's happening. I'm not really sure how to how to break this down, but I think uh, Nietzsche, Freddy Boy is kind of full of shit. But of course, to stand firm on your two feet based on your own individual definition that you know, rather than succumbing to some overarching group standard, I guess to know yourself would probably be a bit, because you have free will to the extent that you know who you are. I stand by that kind of definition. It's like, yeah, you do have options based on how you know yourself. You know, so you listen to your own thing, but ultimately you don't have a choice, I guess. So he goes on to talk about health. Now, what you eat is what you are. Well, I guess this sort of corresponds. He's saying that the determination of what is healthy for you depends on your goals, the kinds of energies you want, your impulses, the things, you know, your folly, everything that goes into your imagination of your soul, I suppose. I don't know what that is, but in essence, it's whatever you want out of your capacity you put in and you you measure what you want to get out on what you want to put in, I suppose. That's how I see it anyway, or that's what I think he means. He's also kind of looking at the fact that maybe this thirst after, you know, what would be good for your soul or what would be healthy for you is not would not be done out of prejudice, a cowardice, and perhaps a bit of uh, barbarism or backwardness. He relates it to this. I don't know. Maybe it's just like you automatically get something out of out of it just by putting something in. 
almost like there's this default status of why well, I don't know I don't know what he's getting at but you could play around with that I guess he goes on to say in a, in a brief section that life is no argument we've arranged the world according to these facts of bodies existing lines planes causes effects motions rests form and content but they are articles of faith and we need them in order to endure life but it does not prove them at all life isn't an argument the conditions of life might include error on the next one, he goes over the infinite. He's talking about a sort of possibility of infinity, that there's just so much potential in everything. He talks about how we have embarked from land and that we have burned the bridges behind us and we have gone farther and destroyed the land behind us. Now, little ship, look out. Beside you is the ocean, to be sure. It does not always roar. And at times it lies spread out like silk and gold and reveries of graciousness. Yeah, the ocean could be so many things. It can, you know, it can kill you. And he mentions that there's like a poor little bird that felt free and now strikes the walls of his cage. Almost as if like you can just become stuck or like you get, you feel maybe homesick or maybe you feel bored at home. Like you want to either go home or you want to get away from home. But there's so much potential wherever you are. So it's like, just be like the bird, just bang out of that cage, you know, burst free. There's more horizons. There's always more horizons, either on whether you're ashore or on the ocean. You can transit shores and you can go as far out as, as, you, as you feel like. Of course, not to be met with the power of infinity that anything can really happen to you. I don't know how much fear plays into Nietzsche's philosophy, but he feels, it feels like he's very fearless. Like you can't drown, you can't, fall off a cliff you can't eat some strange thing that appears to be something else and you die there's no it's like the frontier is like this thing to go into and just throw yourself into it do it for the species you know just just do it like do it so that we can go forth and and live your life on that horizon of this expanse you know and i like that but it's also like jesus you know like I'm afraid of drowning, and I'm afraid of bugs, and I'm afraid of a lot of shit. I'm a, I guess I'm just not a frontiersman. I'm a wimp. Then there is God and the madman. God is dead, and we have killed him. What atonement can we bring? What games and festivals must we conjure in order to, to make right what has been wronged? God has bled out, and the gravedigger has buried him. We have slain him with our knives. We have... What does this mean? I guess it just means the holiest of holy things isn't brought on by how we're viewing it, or at least how Nietzsche views it. Nietzsche, I guess his consciousness would be the madman standing among, amongst people would be that sort of um, counterintuitiveness that everyone goes along with, this sort of logical progression to understanding God or something, and then the real essence and the spirit of God running through you. It's as if, like, that has been buried. That doesn't exist right now. But this madman in the square, you know, ah, you're just going on about, oh, we've killed God, you know, and this it sounds so mad. It sounds so weird and to, to tell everyone this, but... It's just like this call maybe to consciousness, like maybe we have killed God in ourselves. I don't know. I don't know how to how to interpret Nietzsche's madman section. The madman, of course, throws down his lantern and says, well, this is all yet to be done. This will be done in time. Okay, maybe at some point all will be revealed to all. That's the best I got on that one. I think my favorite part in all of this is just when he sums up briefly and answers his own questions. He has these mini sections he goes over. One is what we do. What we do is never understood, but always only praised or censored. As if maybe the space to censor and to praise 
is born out of just the strict fact that we don't understand what we're doing. So we have to, again, step up and be that hero and, and be infinitely jested out of, out of our ethical frameworks or out of our moralizing or out of our acting or rationalizing or perhaps just strategizing in some way. What are man's truths ultimately? Merely his irrefutable errors. Like I smash this truth down and then print it with my, with my truth. Like you can't refute it, but it's just an error in the end, but it's like an error you can't refute. So he's thinking that just the truths are these things that these people have that are errors, but they don't see it that way, but you can't refute it. I guess as it is stated with a great goal, with a great goal, one is superior even to justice, not only to one's deeds and one's judges. How many terrible things have happened that have not stood the trial that was based on some sort of manifestation of destiny? Like maybe we erased this whole continent full of people in order to achieve something? There's just one instance. There's no justice in that. What makes one heroic? Going out to meet at the same time one's highest suffering and one's highest hope. That's like meeting fear with love almost. In what do you believe? In this, that the weight of all things must be determined anew. What does your conscience say? You shall become the person you are. What are your greatest dangers? In pity. What do you love in others? My hopes. Whom do you call bad? Those who always want to put to shame. What do you consider most humane? To spare someone shame. What is the seal of liberation? No longer being ashamed in front of oneself. That shame mentioned in book two is not a part of the gay science. That's it for another one, the gay science book three. Feel free to donate on patreon.com forward slash Solomon's Temple if you feel I'm worthy. Don't be ashamed if you don't. Thank you for joining me. I'll see you next time.